Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. A number of passages that we'd like to look at this morning. But to start with, James chapter 1. James chapter 1, reading verse 1. As we were singing that first number, it seemed to me that one of the packages on this dwarfed white pine tree was keeping time to the music. Did anybody else notice that? Okay, well, that's good. I wasn't seeing things then. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Pray about it. That giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind, and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let's take a moment and ask God to guide us as we look at his word. Our Father, as we approach the word that you have given to us, We desire that your spirit may lead us into a fresh and personal illumination of the subject matter. May we not look at this as an academic exercise or even a literary exercise, but may it be a spiritual activity in our hearts individually and our hearts corporately. Help us again to be reminded of the seriousness and the special privilege that is ours to handle the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For about 10 or 12 years, I didn't speak in chapel. And then this module, we're making up for it. So fasten your seatbelts. There are a lot of things I'd like to share in this little time that is in front of us. On Tuesday, we were talking about James chapter 4 and verse 8, and we called it a spiritual privilege that becomes a sacred promise. Draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. A great promise. A very sobering one to realize that the very God of heaven would respond to us, drawing near to him by drawing near to us. And then on Wednesday, we talked a little bit about character. We considered a little bit of Daniel's life, just very briefly. Much more could be said. We talked about his character with regard to conviction. And we talked about his character as it relates to his conduct and then his conversation, the things that he talked about. And then yesterday we talked about the tongue. You see, our character and our tongue, the things we talk about and say, all of that is reflective of our nearness to the Lord or its opposite. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is talk to you a little bit about the subject of prayer. We cannot be close to the Lord and be prayerless. 
the quality of our prayer life will be a reflection of the health of our own spirituality. It'll be like a little thermometer that reads our spiritual temperature. And so we need to be exercised with regard to the matter of prayer. There are two people that I'd like to talk about this morning. Not you, but from the Bible. I'd like to talk about Jonah and Jonah's prayer meeting that he had in the belly of a great fish down at the very bottom of the ocean. And then I'd like to talk to you about a lady by the name of Hannah and how she prayed out of the bitterness of her heart. But before we come to the two characters, I'd like to look at a few very practical things concerning the matter of prayer and then then to take all of that and then focus in on these two characters. Being near to God will show itself in our prayer life. And when God's people have prayed, God has answered. Wherever you find the history of great spiritual awakenings, where you find revival among the people of God, you will consistently find prayer. The opposite is true, too. Where there is prayerlessness, ministry dries up, prayer meetings stop, and churches close. What a tragedy. Tragedy to exercise that great privilege and to experience God's sacred promise. When we consider the matter of prayer, I think it is very important that we distinguish between praying and saying prayers. There is a world of difference. I don't think God is interested in saying in us simply saying prayers, but he's very interested in us, communing at heart level with him and out of integrity. There are, what I've listed down, ten ingredients in effective, prevailing, meaningful prayer, legitimate praying. I'm sure we could add many more, but ten will be enough for this morning. When we consider the matter of effective prayer, you will consistently find sincerity. Just go back with me for a moment to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew, chapter 6. Reading in verse 5, it says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou prayest, when you do it, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray... Use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be ye not therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before you ask him. There must be sincerity in our praying, not doing it for attention, not doing it because it's expected of us, But there's got to be that sincerity that says, yes, in my heart, I really desire to commune with God. To let him know, as he's asked me to do, 
the things that are so needful for his intervention, his empowering, his work in our midst. We are not to be like the hypocrites who stand in the synagogues. We are rather to be like the deer. In Psalm 42, verse 1, the deer that pants for the water brook, the deer that knows what it needs, knows where to find it, has a clear understanding of the circumstances and the the hour of necessity. In our sincerity, as we come before the Lord personally and, and corporately, we are to come due to our relationship to him as a little child to a parent. God desires us to be sincere in that sense of, I know that I'm going to be accepted. I know that my Heavenly Father wants to hear this request and is pleased to answer. If there is no sincerity, there will be no true praying, maybe saying prayers, but no real communion with God. There must be humility. And I see that in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18, and we could turn to that just for a moment. Luke chapter 18, beginning to read at verse 9. Luke 18 and verse 9. And he, Jesus, spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. If there is not humility in prayer, it is simply saying prayers and not communing with God. There must be also an attitude of repentance, of confession. We can't come into God's presence and expect an answer with defiled hearts. There must be confession and repentance. I think it is a good practice to review one's life at the end of the day and and evaluate it and to say, have I done what I should have done? Have I been pleasing in God's sight, in what I have thought, spoken, and accomplished? And if the answer isn't resoundingly affirmative, then we need to confess that and put that matter right. 1 John 1.9 is sometimes referred to as the Christian's bar of soap. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. So there must be sincerity and humility and confession, and there must be obedience. If we expect God to hear and answer our prayers, we can't be living in disobedience. We might be living in ignorance, 
God doesn't hold us accountable for those things that are beyond us. And what I'm thinking in saying that, he's not going to hold a child at 10 years of age to be as obedient as somebody who is 20 or 30 or more years of age, who's walked with the Lord for a longer time, has had greater privilege, at least because of time. But there must not be disobedience. If there is known disobedience, we're wasting our time in prayer because there won't be an answer. What we need to do is confess that and put that issue right and and do what we should do. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Be obedient. Be obedient to the known word of God because without obedience, prayer will not be answered. How careful we should be to exercise faith. Just go with me to Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 11. In a sense, Hebrews 11 and verse 6 gives us a definition of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So if we're not coming in faith, as we also read in James chapter 1, we're not going to be receiving an answer. So there is a prerequisite for effective praying. There must also be forgiveness. Just go back for a moment to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 says, And be kind one to another. Okay, that's pretty important. God has seen fit to put that on the page of Scripture. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. If we have unforgiveness in our, our hearts, our prayers will not be answered. When we consider the the place of prayer in the New Testament church, when we consider the place of prayer in the believer's life and practice, when we consider the needs of God's people and the needs of God's work, we can't afford to harbor unforgiveness in our hearts. Now, there are some times when you need to say to somebody, sit down, I want to talk to you. There's something wrong. But there are also times when you simply need to pass over what is wrong. Just to illustrate that, just go back to Proverbs 19 and verse 11. Proverbs 19 and verse 11. It says, The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Now there's certainly a balance. For our brother's sake, we may need to sit down and say, we need to talk. Or it may be in your brother or sister's best interest to just pass over what they have done. If we confront everything that goes wrong, that's all we'll ever do. We need to have balance in that. In effective prayer, there must be persistence. And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of Genesis 32 and verse 16, And Jacob, as he wrestled with the angel of the Lord, 
And the angel of the Lord, as the dawn began, said, let me go. And he said, no, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. There was persistence. And of course, Jacob's name was changed from Jacob, from being a deceiver to Israel, a prince with God. He was persistent in his communion with the Lord. And I believe it was the pre-incarnate Jesus with whom he was wrestling. We know from Ephesians 6 and verse 18 that we are to be praying always with all prayer and supplication. That's persistence. Praying always. We must be praying according to God's will. God is not going to, to do for us, according to our prayers, that which is contrary to his will. So we need to be praying in his will. We need to be praying in Jesus' name. Now that saying, you know, we're asking this in Jesus' name, that's not the polite way or religious way to say goodbye to God, like over and out. What we're doing in praying in Jesus' name is by his authorization, according to his will. Praying by his authorization for those things that are uppermost in his opinion. And then in light of Jude 20, we are to be praying in the Spirit, to be controlled and led by the Spirit. As we know from Romans 8, we don't know how to pray as we should, and that the Holy Spirit lives within us, praying with groanings that are so deep and so meaningful, no words are adequate for their expression. Now, with those features of prevailing prayer, I'd like you to look with me at the book of Jonah, just for a few moments. In the book of Jonah, we sometimes think of him as the runaway prophet or the reluctant prophet, and he takes kind of a beating on that, and and that's understandable. But I'd like to look at Jonah in light of his prayer life. Jonah was a man called by God to be a prophet. When we meet him on chapter 1, on the page of chapter 1, he is an experienced prophet. He's been at it for a while. He's grown spiritually. He is knowledgeable. He's got some degree of history behind him, but he's also a very human prophet. What I see in Jonah is a man who knew more than he lived. Is that a possibility for us, to know more than what we actually live out? And I see that as a root cause for the problems in Jonah's life. We might consider him, in light of verse 1 of, of our text in this chapter, as a man, a prophet, with a problem. We might call it Jonah's problem. He begins. He uses the word now. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And then in verse 3 he says, But Jonah rose up, and he went the opposite way went in a totally different direction. Instead of going east, he went west. He was being disobedient to the clearly understood will of God. In a sense, he was saying no to God. Whether he actually said it, had it, said it verbally, 
is questionable, but by his practice, he was saying no to God. And yet God had said, Go unto Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. God told Jonah about the wickedness of Nineveh. He failed to realize that God was greater than Nineveh. Now, I think if we had been in Jonah's shoes, we wouldn't have wanted to go to Nineveh either. Nineveh was one of the most savage, cruel, hateful places on the face of the earth. Several years ago, I did a little study in this line in light of the book of Nahum. And what I discovered in my reading and research, I will not share with you or anybody else. And I intend never to do that. It is terrible, beyond description. It is very understandable for Jonah to say, I don't want to go to Nineveh. God, I'd really like you to jump on that city with both feet and wipe them off the map. Nuke them. Do what you need to do, but get rid of them. I don't want to go and minister to these people. They're awful. He had his reasons, no doubt. But his reasons didn't match the will of God. Which were greater, all of Jonah's reasons or the will of God? And so he went the other way and said no to God. In fact, it tells us in verse 3 that Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He wanted to be away from the Lord. And it's interesting, too, that he was able to do that. Not literally from the actual presence of God, but he was able to get away from where he knew he was supposed to be. It was easy for him to do that. And he went to Joppa, and he found a ship. It was easier for him to take the provision of the world rather than the path of God's will. It was easier to do that. At least, for a time, it was easier. I think it was going to get very hard really quick. And as we know the account, they went into the ship, and there was a huge storm, and the mariners, pagans, they started praying. But we don't read of Jonah praying. What we find Jonah doing is going down into the, the hole of the ship and he's sound asleep while the mariners are praying. I wonder what he was thinking in doing that. We know the story, how they took Jonah and they threw him overboard at his request. And I see that great fish swimming through the water, just moving along through the water, seeing Jonah opening his mouth and swallowing him. What I see in that is that that fish was more obedient to the will of God than the prophet himself. It's a pretty bad state of affairs when the fish is more obedient than the believer. Using a little sanctified imagination now, picture Jonah down in the belly of that great fish. I don't think he had lots of room to go for a walk. He was probably encased in the stomach lining. Hmm, what a lovely thought. In that fish's stomach, there would be several layers of muscle tissue that would be flexing and relaxing and trying to aid in the digestive process. There would be lots of digestive acids down there. And he probably wasn't alone. There'd probably been some seaweed, as we know from the text, and maybe some other partially digested fish and so on. Not exactly a nice environment. Jonah's problem, running from God, 
I wonder what was in his mind. For three days and three nights before he started to pray, what was he thinking? I don't know. But I do know this, that he wasn't praying until he came to the end of the three days and three nights. And then in chapter 2 and verse 4, Jonah repented. Notice what the text of Scripture says in chapter 2 and verse 4. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. He's talking to God. Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. There's repentance. Yes, I've run away from you, but I really want to get back in fellowship. Jonah made that fish sick. Chapter 2 and verse 10 says, And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Now, you must use a little imagination here. Here's this great fish swimming in towards the shore, and he spits Jonah out of his mouth, and he lands on the shore. I suspect that Jonah was burned by the acids in that fish's stomach. Three days and three nights would get rid of his hair, his eyebrows, his eyelashes, whiskers. Probably it would burn his skin. Probably his clothes didn't look too freshly pressed either. Now Jonah was a different man. He was ready. We see him praying. And he's, he's referring to Scripture. He's referring to Psalm 18. And he's referring to Psalm 42 and Psalm 88 in his prayer, in his communion with God. He's a different person now. Not where he might be, but he's not where he was. And we know in chapter 3, it says, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. And he was willing. I see his problem, his prayer of confession, and then his preaching. He went to Nineveh and he preached. Probably the most effective evangelistic message that's ever been given. Eight recorded words only. Kind of a short message. And there he lifted up his heart and he preached. But he wasn't right either in his own heart. He was more concerned when God didn't destroy the city and he was sitting out on the hillside watching. He was more concerned for a gourd that came up and provided shade than he was for all of the people in Nineveh. You see, in prayer begins the road to sanctification. And Jonah, if you heard him or saw him preaching in the streets of Nineveh, you'd say, here's a great saint of God. But here's a man who had the seeds of depression within him, who had the seeds of callousness within him, didn't care about people. He was more concerned about his own comfort. Did he want his message to be received? No, he didn't want it to be received. He was an effective preacher, but his own heart was not where it should have been. And just for about two minutes, I'd like you to think about Hannah for me, with me. Hannah didn't have the privileges that Jonah did. She had never been to Bible school, as far as we know. She was married. She had a loving husband, but he was a polygamist. She didn't have a good environment and all of the privileges that one might have hoped for. And we find Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 praying in the temple, weeping 
in bitterness of heart. Even in her prayer, she was misunderstood. Eli came and said, you're a drunk. Go home and sober up. Her prayers were misunderstood. The burden of her heart, her relationships were misunderstood. And all that that was in her life was discredited. You're just a drunk. Go home. But she was sincere. She evidenced those criteria that we talked about earlier. And God granted her request. And out of that prevailing prayer came Samuel. A man who ministered to others in chapter 2 and verse 26 of, of 1 Samuel. He was a help to Eli. And out of that prayer in the temple, being so deeply misunderstood, came the man who held the first prophetic office. There were other prophets, certainly, before Samuel, but not anyone holding the office of a prophet. Prevailing prayer. What I see in in Hannah's life is a lady who prayed sincerely, and God heard her prayer. In looking at these two characters, we might come to a conclusion, a question or two. How does my life define being near to the Lord? In terms of character, in terms of the things that I say, and in terms of my prayer life. Let's bow together in closing prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful that you love us. And you desire that communion with us. We thank you that you have given us instruction on how to pray. Help us to be those who are diligent in our prayer life and who make it a point to be so and to evidence obedience to your word and your will in our lives, in this area and in every other area as well. Help us to be faithful to this and to be participators in your work through prayer. And may what you see in our prayer life be pleasing in your sight, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.